Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. Thank you for tuning in. This is our second episode of Gill Group. Uh, we would encourage you, if you would like to, go back and listen to our first episode of Gill Group. We can link to it uh, in the show notes. Uh, we talked about the importance of Jim Gill and why we're uh, doing these podcasts on John Gill uh, in that episode. But as you clicked on the feed, you likely noticed that this is uh, about John Gill's commentary on the Song of Solomon. I have the privilege uh, in this conversation of speaking with Jimmy Johnson, Dewey Doval, and Ken Glitch. Welcome, brothers. It's good to see your faces. It's good to uh, have this conversation with you. Yeah, long overdue. Good to be back uh, recording Gill Group number two. Yeah, it's an honor and a joy to be with you, brothers, as always. Yes, and uh, we'll try to do our best to be a little bit more conversational back and forth than uh, is as uh, our normal format where we really just try to get out of the way of our interviewee uh, and let them talk. But now, uh, unlike normal, we're going to talk more to each other and conversate with each other. Uh, we wanted to do an episode on uh, John Gill's commentary on the Song of Solomon. Obviously, this was a work of great importance in Gill's day. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about its historical importance and uh, how it led to him becoming well-known. And we're going to talk about this subject, giving a few examples of how John Gill uh, interpreted this book Christologically uh, and hopefully uh, commend that interpretive method to you as well. But before we begin to get into this uh, conversation and get into the weeds a little bit, uh, Pastor Ken, I don't know if you mentioned last time, I'm having a hard time remembering your involvement with PBHB. Maybe you could restate your involvement with PBHB and talk about an important forthcoming publication related yes. to John Gill. Yes. So I think I did mention in the Gill Group number one, but I officially uh, am the director of donor relations for a particular Baptist Heritage books, which just means that I have the privilege of volunteering some time to work with ministry partners that support the work. PBHB is a small uh, Christian publisher, and really we consider ourselves, I, I tell people this, we are not a bookseller, we're a ministry that sells books because we make no profit off the sale of the books. All of our books are priced just to pay for the cost of materials uh, to put another one back in print so that we can keep these titles in perpetuity in print. And uh, it's just my joy to to have something to do with PBHB. It's really kind of a dream position, so to speak. And I know Pastor Doug Barger, who is the founder of Particular Baptist Heritage Books, you've done an episode with him on the Covenant podcast, and I get to work with Doug, and uh, what a great joy that is. And PBHB is in the process of putting out a complete edition of Gill's works. Uh, we're going to reprint everything he wrote with his commentaries accepted. So we won't be, at least in this run, reprinting his commentaries just because uh, that would take, that would, it would double the or triple the time of this project. And also most everybody that uses his commentaries that we've surveyed uses them digitally anyhow. Uh, but a lot of the stuff, including this volume that we're going to be discussing in this episode, is very hard to find in print. And so Lord willing, early this summer, early summer 2024, we should be coming out with 
volume three of, of our John Gill works. Volumes one and two are out. Volumes one and two are his um, Cause of God and Truth, which I'm sure we'll be doing an episode about that on the Gill group at some point. So that's already in print. But Lord willing, sometime this summer, we'll have volume three out of Gill. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of other great particular Baptist authors that we're reprinting and, and so many things in the works. But please uh, go online, Facebook and all of the different socials and the website and look into PBHB if you're not familiar with them and just check for that volume to drop. And I'm, I'm maybe a Covenant podcast can can put a link when it does come out. But Austin, you'll be proud of me because actually for, for this episode in preparation, I've been reading Gill on my Logos Bible software. And, uh, you know, Austin's always my go-to guy when I'm like, how do I make a note and how do I put it in a notebook? But it was super helpful to do that. And you can get this digitally as well. So I'm, I, I don't really care how you're reading it. Obviously, I want you to read it from a PBHB publication. But as long as you're reading it, that's that's what this episode is all about. So. Just, just to make clear, volume three is this including this work that we're Absolutely, uh, yeah. podcasting about in this episode. Right. Yes. Yes. So. Uh, volumes one and two are already out. And they're the cause of God and truth. Volume three will be the whole volume will be Gill's commentary, his exposition of the Song of Solomon, which is what we're discussing in this Gill group. Great. I want to just add that it's worth mentioning that this exposition is different than the exposition you will find yes. in his Old Testament commentaries. Um, not so much in the content or the interpretation. It's just more in depth and perhaps more sermonic um, and homiletical in it in its delivery, but it is worth mentioning that it is a different volume than right. the ones that's found in his commentary. No, it's a very helpful introduction uh, from both of you brothers. And um, you know, during our time before the official recording of this episode, uh, we were kind of sketching out how we could go about addressing all of the talking points that we would cover today. And um, I noted that uh, when it comes to history, when it comes to uh, biographical information, uh, I'm probably the least informed out of the brothers who I'm sitting with and discussing about John Gill today, and particularly uh, his commentary on the Song of Solomon and his exegetical work on the Song of Solomon. So uh, Ken, Jimmy, even Austin, if you feel led to do so, let's dive into some of the historical context surrounding this work. Of course, as we mentioned, I think, in the previous episode of Gill Group, um, John Gill may have developed the most extensive uh, and the most uh, well-developed commentary that exists on the Song of Solomon. If it's not the best, it's definitely one of the best that's ever been produced. Uh, he preached over 100 sermons out of this book alone. Uh, I don't know if I've ever even heard a, a sermon from the Song right. of Solomon in our day, at least, you know, in my experience. So take that for whatever it's worth. Gil preached over a hundred sermons. Would you guys be willing to speak a little bit as to why this work was so important for Gil? Why, why was it so revolutionary for him to devote so many sermons to the Song of Solomon uh, and really the, the exegetical and theological work that he did in the Song of Solomon? Why was that so important and well-known in Gil's respective contexts? Jimmy or Ken, Pat, jump in, one of you. Go ahead, Ken. I'll I'll piggyback off of you. Yeah, I, I felt like I just said a whole bunch about the PBHB, but sure. Um, yeah, Dewey, that's exactly right. It is an important historical work. And yeah, 122 sermons, I believe, that it was that Gil preached from Song of Solomon 
uh, Lectio Continua, you know, just straight through the book. And he did that in a day in which amongst the particular Baptists, that wasn't the most common form of preaching. A lot of emphasis in our day, and I think it's a good emphasis on preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, but that wasn't Gill's typical style in his Sunday morning sermons. So that right there speaks volumes to the importance that he placed upon this book, that he was willing to devote 122 Sunday morning Lord's Days to um, to this book. And, you know, he mentions in the preface one of the main reasons why he did it, and that was because he lived in a time in which the book was taking a lot of flack from higher critics on even its inspiration and its canonicity. Mm-hmm. And so Gill, as we all know, on so many issues was fighting theological liberalism and especially, you know, on the, the doctrine of theology proper and the doctrine of, of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. But here's the thing. When it comes to Song of Solomon, if, if if I were to ask you brothers, like, you know, what are some key texts in the Bible to unveil the person and work of Christ? Well, today we might say, well, Colossians 1 or, you know, uh, the Gospel of John, John 1. Well, Gil in that list would have no doubt said Song of Solomon. So he didn't just defend it because it's this beautiful poem in the Old Testament. He defended this book because he sees for, all throughout this book the person of the Lord Jesus Christ being unveiled in this book. And so that was one of the, the main reasons why he felt it necessary to preach through and impress upon his people's minds that this book is Theonoustos. This is the, the inspired, infallible, canonical word of God. I think that that covers most of the historical um, rationale for for his production of this book. It's worth mentioning also that he was asked to publish it um, by members in his church and other trusted friends. And we're going to get into the preface here in a little bit. So I don't want to go too much into that, but I, I think he was asked to do it. I mean, his sermons were so impactful on the hearers that many in his church were basically pleading with him because they saw immense value in, in what was proclaimed. And they Mm -hmm. thought that that value would transfer into writing and, Mm -hmm. and impact an even greater amount of people than the people I was church. I was just going to, Oh, go ahead. I was going to mention that, uh, I think if my memory is serving me correctly, this was one of, uh, his first publications in his ministry, his right. fir- his very first one uh, that I'm aware of uh, was a funeral sermon, mm-hmm. uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. And this was his second publication after that. Is that correct or no? Uh, no, I believe he did bap- or he did publish a couple of pamphlets on baptism okay. um, in response to one was a a anonymous writing and then. The guy who probably wrote the anonymous writing wrote a second pamphlet, but his name was on it, and Gil responded to that too. Mm-hmm. And and then I think it might have been this one, or there might have been one other smaller pamphlet. But it was very early. You're not and wrong this, about that. This was his first major publication, for sure, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And and I, that speaks volumes to Gil, you know, because uh, the greatest writers and the greatest Christian publications have oftentimes been things that were requested or that the author published at the behest of others. And that's true of also true of Gill's cause of God and truth. You know, Daniel Whit- Whitby wrote the discourse on the five points and uh, the particular Baptists were looking to Gill. Would you please respond to this? And Gill said, no. And then they asked him again and he said, no. And then after a third time coming to him, he finally agrees 
to write a response. And so uh, the fact that that this this commentary is already something that a, a church of the Lord Jesus Christ has profited from and saying, we want this to go beyond the four walls of Carter Lane, and we want to see this go out and into the, the evangelical world just already speaks of the accreditation that this work has. Oh, thank you guys for clarifying my error there. It's good to have uh, multiple brothers here on Gill Group number two. Uh, but well, that, I well, that's why, you know, we talked about how we like to get out of the way when we have panelists on for our interview. I knew if we were talking about biographical or historical issues, I just need to get out of the way and, <laughs> and let Jimmy and Ken get after it. Uh, but I'll yeah. speak more to this next subject. And Ken, you even alluded to it in your uh, commentary there about uh, Gill's exegetical work and, and his preaching through the Song of Solomon. And that's really his approach, his approach mm -hmm. to preaching through that book, the Bible. Um, I, I really believe many in our day today, uh, in, in you know post enlightenment twentieth nineteenth twentieth twenty first century, uh, whether it be liberal Christianity, whether it be self identifying conservative Christianity as a whole, most people would probably see the Song of Solomon as just a beautiful poetic Old Testament book that sets forth the excellency of marriage between a man and a woman. They, they wouldn't draw much um, insights or or much emphasis on the, the, the Christological uh, realities that Gil teases out throughout the book from start to finish and uh, and what others have done as well throughout the history of the church. So um, and I think a lot of that would stem from a, a hyper elevation of the grammatical historical hermeneutic. And, and that, of course, being saturated in our day and and contemporary expressions of dispensational thought. So I, I want to bounce some ideas off of you guys to chew on particularly regarding some of the weaknesses of limiting our exegesis to a strictly exclusively grammatical historical method mm -hmm. of interpretation. I'll start with sharing a few insights and you guys feel free to jump on uh, as well. And to the listener, that's my daughter screaming in the background. So uh, if, if you uh, don't have kids or you're wanting to have kids of your own someday, uh, you will see total depravity exercise from a very young age uh, in your own household. So in any case, uh, I'll, I'll jump into uh, some of my thoughts. I think we could all agree that the most natural way to go about reading any source of literature would be in keeping with a grammatical historical hermeneutic. That, that's just a, a very natural way of interpreting literature. It seems to be intuitive when you interpret a literary source, you're going to look at things like authorial intent. You're going to look at things like the grammar or, or characteristics of syntax, those sorts of things. You're going to consider genre. You're going to consider historical context. Th these are all methods or, or all aspects, you could say, of the grammatical historical hermeneutic. Um, so at the beginning, I, I think we would all agree that biblical exegesis begins with a faithful application of a grammatical historical hermeneutic. But with that being said, though scripture is literature, um, it's unlike any other literary source that exists on the planet because scripture alone is God's inspired self-revelation. And by virtue of it being God's inspired self-revelation, um, we find inspired commentary throughout scripture. We, we find inspired commentary on people, events, circumstances, all from a God-oriented perspective. And as a result of that component and distinctive of the Word of God, um, there are cases in which a passage of Scripture has a meaning 
that goes beyond what the original human author could have ever conceived in their mind because from right. God's eternal and omniscient vantage point, that passage was ultimately intended to shed light on a reality that would only be seen more clearly against the backdrop of God's comprehensive revelation. And uh, in our day, we've seen kind of a resurgence of this. I think of guys like Matthew Barrett and others who have done some work in the area of, of a census plenior, uh, which is a Latin phrase meaning fuller sense or fuller meaning. So, so text can have a fuller sense or a fuller meaning than what was originally discernible or intended from a human author when we're, when we're viewing it from the lens of God's eternal and omniscient perspective and inspiration. And um, for our listeners, I'm not going to read the text. You can go and read them at your own time. But in Daniel 12, 8 and 9 and 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, uh, we find examples where biblical prophets, they were faithful to record what God was leading them to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the prophets didn't fully understand every dimension of what they were being led to transcribe, uh, of what they were being led to write, what they were being led to transcribe in the word of God. And I think one of the clearest examples of a of a example of of this idea of Scripture having potentially a fuller sense than what can simply be derived from a grammatical historical hermeneutic is found in Hosea 11.1 being uh, quoted in Matthew 2.15. And I just want to share that with you guys. And hopefully this, this sets the table for what we can discuss in regards to how Gill interprets the bulk of the Song of Solomon um, as, as having that, that fuller meaning or that fuller sense uh, than, than what can be derived just from a bare literalistic reading. Um, as, as many of our listeners will know, in Matthew 2.15, Matthew applies Hosea 11.1's description of Israel as God's son to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then scripture, of course, eventually reveals that Jesus is the only begotten son of God the Father. So Hosea 11.1, 1, authorial intent, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. God's recounting his redemption of Israel from the tyranny of Egypt, from the Exodus narrative. Israel's my son, God says. But then Matthew 2.15, Matthew depicts Jesus and his family fleeing from the tyranny of King Herod, uh, departing from Egypt, and, and, uh, and being safe, of course, from Herod's decree to kill uh, male children from the age of two and under. Um, so, so what does that have to do with grammatical historical hermeneutic to land the plane? Well, the words that God led Hosea to write in his unique context, they meant something to Hosea. They meant something to the original recipients of Hosea's prophecy. So there is a sense when we read Hosea 11, 1, we can interpret it in the way that Hosea would have likely intended those words to be communicated. We can interpret them in the way that the old covenant community of faith would have interpreted those words to mean. But because we have the fullness of, of God's self-revelation in Scripture, we should interpret Hosea 11.1 1 in the way that Matthew 2.15 does. Yeah. And as a result of that, when we look at the, the full-orbed picture of God's Word, we should realize there, there's grammatical historical hermeneutic for an, a text in its immediate context. But then what, what's the fuller, more expansive understanding of this text in light of the comprehensive canon of Scripture? And of course, the pushback that there's going to be some pushback here, I'm sure, from from those who may not be familiar with this perspective, um, whether it be biblicistic or dispensational minded listeners. Um, some will say, well, listen, that was the that was the biblical writers, the apostles, New Testament writers. They could interpret the Bible differently than we can. They had the Holy Spirit uh, inspiring them. Um, my loving pushback against that and uh, trying to refute that mindset is that um if you say that that we can't interpret God's word 
for example, the Song of Solomon. If we can't interpret God's word in the Song of Solomon differently, or excuse me, if we can't interpret God's word in the Song of Solomon in a way that takes the full counsel of God's word into consideration, if we are only stuck with a rigid grammatical historical hermeneutic um, because we aren't the apostles, you, you reduce the inspiration of scripture to a dictation view. You, you lose the organic reality where the Holy Spirit gave the human authors the freedom to use their unique styles of writing under God's superintendence, of course. But, but the, the production of scripture came from an organic, uh, an organic authorship of, of the human writers um, who were carried along by the spirit in such a way that their personalities and their unique writing style was not overcome. So if, if that's true of the human authors of scripture, how much more so should that be true of those of us who have interpreted scripture against the backdrop now of roughly 2000 years of men who have also had the Holy Spirit, who've gone to the text, who've, who've prayed over the text and who've sought to rightly divide the text for the glory of God and the good of God's people. So when we think about the Song of Solomon and we think about this, 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 this idea of, of census plenty or this fuller sense or fuller meaning, um, how do you guys think? Gil would have gone about that approach. Do you, do you think he would have been like-minded with that? Do you think those were some things in his mind or uh, would love to hear some of your insights on that particular issue? Well, Gil begins to talk about this in the preface. I'm sure you brothers were going to mention this as well. Um, he talks about some of the sources that he consulted, the original languages, some of the commentators that he was helped by. And then uh, he gives a... A uh, comment or two in one of the paragraphs about his method that he's interpreting this book according to the analogy of faith. He's interpreting uh, this portion of scripture in light of all of scripture. And um, then he even makes an apology beforehand in case he interprets incorrectly out of zeal to make sure that he gets us Christ uh, in the book of Song of Solomon. Um, when when Dewey and I had the privilege of talking with G.K. Beale, we asked him if we should uh, interpret like the apostles did. Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, but one thing that distinguishes between us and them is that the apostles had a more certain uh, a certainty that their conclusions were absolutely inspired, whereas although we may mirror uh, their interpretive method we may mess up in our conclusions. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gil seems to acknowledge that as he tries to get Christ out of the Song of Solomon. Let me just read uh, a few lines, then open it up for comments, what you guys think about what he says here. He says, Where two or more senses of any passage have offered agreeable to the analogy of faith, I have considered them all and have made what improvement of them I was capable of. He's talking about when comparing commentators leaving the reader to judge for himself which of them is most preferable. This I thought to be a much better way than to be too positive and dogmatical in the mm -hmm. sense of a text, especially in such a part of scripture which is too so very mystical and obtruse. I hope it will be imputed to an honest zeal and a hearty desire to set forth the glory of Christ's person and his exceeding great love to his church and people to do which all tropes and figures, all the flowers of rhetoric fall abundantly short. Mm. So, so yeah, I think Gil would have been on board of uh, interpreting this book 
according to all of scripture and the analogy of faith? What, what, what comments do you guys have about this quote or anything else we've been talking about here? Well, I know that this, uh, the purpose of this episode is not to rehash a hermeneutics discussion. So I don't want to get too off in the weeds and I would commend, I've listened to it. The episode you guys did with, uh, Dr. Beal, phenomenal. His essay on did Jesus and the apostles preach the right doctrine from the wrong text? Phenomenal. You know, I think the hangup for a lot of modern guys is that in the last, say, 50, maybe 70 years or so, the grammatical historical hermeneutic has been posited as the conservative's hermeneutic. So, you know, if you're a conservative and if you believe the Bible, then you just use a grammatical historical hermeneutic. I just want the original authorial intent. And it's the liberals that take scripture and they allegorize it away. And certainly there are people that allegorize it away. I mean, when you've got, I'm not even going to open up that can of worms, but you know, we've all seen people horrendously allegorize scripture. And what we must remember in that is that we don't, we're, we have no license for blind, unbridled allegorization. We have Two principles, analogy of fide and analogy of scriptura, the analogy of faith and the analogy of scripture that serve as our guardrails for allegorization. And, um, you know, it's 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 hard to rule out that, that there are allegories all throughout the Bible when the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 quotes a historical text and says this is an allegory. Right. So uh, Gil certainly would have would have fallen in line. And Gil's, but Gill's hermeneutic, brothers, is not anything unique. It, it, Gill simply was following the reformed puritanical hermeneutic that would have been employed by Calvin and Beza and Turretin and the other particular Baptists and the Puritans. And you know, Dewey, you, you mentioned that in our day it's very uncommon to hear a sermon from Song of Solomon, but in the Puritans day, it wasn't uncommon at all. In fact, Song of Solomon was one of the most preached texts when churches would observe the sacred supper, uh, because they would see so much of Christ and the gospel and his love for the church in the, in, in Song of Solomon, that it made perfect sense to preach from that book, uh, when it came time to observe the Lord's supper. Uh, so yeah, Austin, you're spot on. And I, I had that uh, quote in my notes as well, because it really shows Gill's desire. And he, and he basically says there what I, what I just said that, yes, I'm allegorizing. Yes, I'm seeing Christ, but I'm not doing this blindly. I have the analogy, analogy of scripture and I have the analogy of faith. And these are my guardrails to, to rightly interpret Song of Solomon in the way we should given all of scripture. We have to remember that the Bible has two authors. So there's Solomon writing a poem, and then there's God inspiring Solomon and, and breathing through Solomon as God records his revelation and inscripturates it for us. Yeah, I think Ken hit on it that one of the issues or probably the main issue that we run into when dealing with the interpretation of the Song of Solomon that we find in Gill is that it has been decided by some in more conservative leaning circles that grammatical historical method is the only method. And that's what it is the bona fide of being a conservative Bible believing Christian. If you don't do it, then you are a liberal. But I would just posit that the term conservative and liberal um, does not necessarily help in this actual debate mm -hmm. because technically the grammatical historical method is a very modernist approach mm -hmm. um, to the text. And the original liberals 
would have like the Sasonians and and the higher critics in Germany prior to the the mm -hmm. advent of postmodernism would have read the Bible in a very grammatical historical way. Um, and conservatives at times tried to beat them tit for tat and therefore started to interpret it in that way also and, and approach it in that way and address those things. But I mean, the problem is if you call us a liberal, what they're actually saying is you're a postmodernist, right? You're, you're not a modernist because that wouldn't work because obviously we don't interpret it the way that the modernists did. But the problem is postmodernists do not have the guardrails that Ken mentioned. They, they literally can take the meaning of the text becomes whatever the reader says that it means, irrespective of what the author meant, irrespective, and when we come to scripture, irrespective of the two authors, God and the human author that he inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit. So really that accusation falls flat. It, right. It's not intellectually honest or, or historically informed to level that accusation of those who come at the Bible in this way, because we are actually retrieving a, a very common way of approaching the scripture that doesn't just go back to the reformers. Right. But we find such readings in the church fathers. Mm -hmm. We find it in the medieval period. And yes, we can make the argument that sometimes there were excesses and Gill even acknowledges that he could have been excessive mm -hmm. in his allegory. But I've heard dispensationalists in particular say that, you know, we just we don't want to try and hammer out Christ in every text like they're afraid that they're going to find Christ somewhere where he's not. And I I, I say that halfway in jest. But I think that if you were to say that to John Gill, he would be appalled. What What do you mean? Right. <laughs> I'm too much of Christ. It's like that's that's what your hearers need. They need Christ. And, and Christ himself says that he is the subject, the central subject, the scope, the focal point of the scriptures. That's how he interprets the scriptures to the men on the road to Emmaus. That's how he interprets it in John. He sees it in light of himself. So. Yeah. I don't want to get I've already gotten bogged down into the debate, but I won't go any further in yeah. that. Um, and I'll let someone else if there's more comments on this. And then prior to going to our our next part of the subject, I would like to make a case for for John Gill's approach to the Song of Solomon from Ephesians. Yeah, well, make it, brother. <laughs> well, I felt like I had talked a long time there, but I think although John Gill doesn't make this argument to my knowledge, um, it's been a while since I've read his in, the entire commentary on the Song of Solomon, but um, the idea of seeing the marital one flesh relationship as ultimately pointing to Christ is not something that is just made up on the fly. Mm -hmm by an interpreter and and there is textual warrant to to see such a thing and I, and of course we would go to Ephesians 5 here and and really beginning in verse 28 Paul writes so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies he that loveth his wife loveth himself for no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the lord the church for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man, now 
This is quoting Genesis 2. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. Now listen here what Paul says in verse 32. He says this, referring to that quotation in the further comments um, before it on the nature of the church being the body of Christ, he says, this is a great mystery, mm. but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is we have this section on marriage in Ephesians, and really most of the comments in this section are not actually about literal marriage. There is plenty of information about literal marriage, but it's being um, tied, um, bound to right. the relationship that Christ has with the church. And I think that Gil is really just channeling the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul tells us to be imitators of him. And I think that, I think that Gil is really doing that in Song of Solomon. And I, I would make the case that we, we should also do so. So I don't think it's a strain at all to see this book as ultimately pointing to the relationship between Christ and the church. Yeah, amen. And, and you know, just so our listeners are clear, we are not arguing that, well, Song of Solomon is is a fictitious story. No, there, there, there was a real historical man named Solomon who wrote a poem, uh, you know, to a Shulamite lover. And they, they were it was a real historical event that took place. And it is a love poem between a, a human man and a human woman that were very much in love with each other. All we're saying is that that's not all that was going on there. That, that in the in the providence of God inspiring scripture, because he's God, he can do this, whether you know our biblicist friends realize this or not, God is able to retain a, a verifiable historical event. Solomon has doesn't even understand the depths in which he is unveiling and revealing the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But Solomon's not the only speaker. There's Solomon, and then there's the God who is breathing through Solomon with a greater, more grandiose purpose to unveil the mystery of Christ. So it's, it's not an either or it's in, in fact, it's actually the biblicist who would, who would very much limit scripture as Dewey pointed out and very much limit, you know, and, and almost put God in a box, like saying, no, God, you're not able to say anything in your word other than what a limited finite human author is able to convey, you know? So, Absolutely. Ephesians 5 is uh, is a glorious New Testament passage that demonstrates the exact approach that Gil would have taken. He's really just the high point of pre-modern exegesis. Amen. That's a great segue. Uh, you know, as, as much as we can all uh, hash out our differences of hermeneutics uh, with, with our dispensational brothers and sisters and, and our biblicistic friends as well, um, there is great value in those conversations. But for this purpose uh, of this episode, I think it's a good time to segue now into some of the content of Gill's commentary in the Song of Solomon. And of course, we're going to start the preface, as we've noted a few times up to this point. Um, you know, I I really enjoyed seeing Gill. We, we mentioned by way of passing earlier in this episode um, that, that Gill had a high regard for the canonicity of the Song of Solomon. And he goes so far to note that there's never been a time throughout Jewish history or throughout church history in which the canonicity of the Song of Solomon was seriously questioned by the overwhelming majority of God's people. He's emphatic. This is a canonical uh, portion of God's word. Uh, he, he, he states that the Song of Solomon 
has the plain marks of a divine original and proofs of its being of divine inspiration. And he sets forth the following uh, as the the uh, proofs of divine inspiration, the following marks, if you will. He says that the Song of Solomon, I'm paraphrasing, the Song of Solomon was written by a man who was elsewhere inspired by God to write portions of scripture, which of course we know Solomon having written Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, Gill notes that the literary composition of the Song of Solomon uh, is such that it seems to transcend anything that could be merely attributed to the work of a sinful man. Uh, you, you can't read the Song of Solomon, in other words, and say this is just this is just some ordinary artifact of, of a sinner writing something down uh, for his own purpose. This has something transcendent, something divine, something uh, of eternal worth inherent within the literature itself. Uh, he notes that the Song of Solomon is said to have power and efficacy over the hearts of men who take the time to read its content. Um, so there's the there's the objective components of the text of Song of Solomon that Gill notes, and then there's that subjective internal experiential awareness uh, that this book has power. This book reveals Christ. This book points us uh, to truths that have been dispensed by the living God. Um, Gill notes that the Song of Solomon is an impartial book. He, he, he says that in respect to the bride described in the text as confessing and proclaiming her own failings and infirmities. Uh, and then he, of course, mentions several texts that he believes are either allusions or references uh, to the Song of Solomon throughout the New Testament, which would confirm how the biblical authors uh, on the other side of Christ's incarnation uh, his life, his death, and resurrection. It shows how they would have perceived the Song of Solomon as canonical scripture, as inspired scripture as well. Um, so, so brethren, I, I want to hear how you would um, would take from from Gill's preface. How would you take from that preface and, and and impact our listeners with with why the Song of Solomon was important to Gill and why it should be important to us too? What are some of the aspects of the preface? that really stood out to you on those particular matters. I gave one example earlier, which he explicitly states his interpretive method that he's interpreting this book in light of uh, the analogy of faith. He's doing it in humility um, at the request of somebody else. He's doing it in an informed way by checking uh, not only the Septuagint, the Vulgate, the Tigurine, which I had to look up, uh, was, I think, near uh, Swingley, Swiss, and uh, checking the Jewish commentators, checking the Christian commentators, um, trying to get Christ, even if he messes up. I think that's commendable. Um, we, yeah, obviously we don't want to... Uh, allegorize in such a way that's dishonest, uh, stepping beyond those guardrails that can emphasize so much, but we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't stop at a grammatical historical method mm -hmm. and John Gill definitely doesn't. Is it okay if I transition us Dewey to our next point or does well, Jimmy I, have something? I, I did want to just read something that I found, um, semi 
humorous, I guess. Not something you would expect, I guess, from a guy like Gil and how he's often portrayed. But he says at the end of his preface, he says, I have also given a summary of the contents of each chapter, which was wanting in my former editions. And though I had in many parts of the work attended to the literal sense of passages, yet not so frequently as I have in my shorter notes on this book published by the exposition of the whole Bible. I have therefore inserted from thence many things related to the literal sense, with many others added, which will greatly enrich this edition and make it more entertaining. Um, yeah, 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 I noticed that too. <laughs> entertaining. Um, I, I think from that, we we can learn a lesson that it, it's very possible for us to make scripture and scriptural truths boring when they are not at all boring. Um, and we should not try to be dull. <laughs> that should not be our goal in the presentation of scriptural to- truth. And and Gil literally had, in some of his inclusions of things, in mind a desire to make his work more readable, yeah, right. more enjoyable to the reader. Um, so I think that's just worth mentioning. He 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 was not going about it to be a boring guy. He was not just a curmudgeon. He wanted to bring mm-hmm. joy by virtue of the truths of God's word to the people who would read his work. And I, I enjoyed reading that comment in it. I love how Gil just nonchalantly tells us, oh yeah, in my earlier edition, I had some paraphrases where I had translated from the Chaldee and the Targum, but I decided to leave those out because I didn't think (laughs) it would be beneficial for the modern reader. You know, because Gil's the type of guy that just casually translates and makes his own paraphrase from the Chaldee. Uh, but, and I tell people if, if they're trying to get into Gill, what a phenomenal place to start is, is this commentary on Song of Solomon, because he does leave out a lot of the more technical things that you'll find in his body of divinity. And especially in his commentaries, you know, where sometimes in his commentaries, he just goes on and on for paragraphs on the Hebrew and the Targum and the Chaldean, all of the, the Syriac version, um, but but moreover than that, the thing that makes this work stand out, I don't think we've mentioned yet, is that, uh, not directly anyways, is that this was not in any way a polemical work. He was not writing this as a response to an Arian or a response to a semi-Pelagian. It's a very pastoral work. And if you have this caricature, like so many people do in their minds, of Gill being kind of this more, you know, hyper-Calvinist, which he's not at all a hyper-Calvinist, but... Uh, the kind of this hyper Calvinist, cold, uh, hard to read. Maybe you imagine Gill in your mind, like he's just going to be this grumpy guy in a study. Read this commentary on Song of Solomon and just see how warm and how uh, I tell people it's a great devotional, you know, to take a verse a day and, and spend a year or two reading through it in the mornings. And it just thrills your soul as Gill directs your focus on the love that Christ has for his people. Amen. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It just speaks to volumes about his pastoral heart, wanting people to cherish Christ. This isn't just a dry mm-hmm. intellectual endeavor, but it's it's designed to have God's people behold their God with greater love and adoration and worship, which is clearly Amen. replete throughout the course of his um, his commentary. But Austin, take it away, brother. Take us into the text. Yeah, I mean, we we have been somewhat polemical as we've been talking about the grammatical historical method, but this work really isn't uh, as polemical as we have been. It It is a rich volume. It gets straight to the point in the verses that we're going to be drawing out and getting us straight to Jesus Christ and seeing uh, the benefits that the church of Jesus Christ has in union with her husband. 
for the rest of this conversation before we will later conclude, we want to give two examples of how uh, John Gill interpreted this work Christologically. So the first of them will be Song of Solomon 1-2, and the second of them later will be Song of Solomon 4-12. Uh, let me read Song of Solomon 1-2, uh, give you the outline that he gives for this verse, and then uh, briefly summarize his meaning of it, and then open it up for conversation with mm -hmm. the brothers. So Song of Solomon 1-2 says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Mm. And before I begin to, I'll be my last polemical comment here. <laughs> if we don't have a spiritual, uh, all of canon type of interpretation, this is this is merely a romantic work, but um, mm. not denying the original context. Uh, the Holy Spirit intends more than that. Uh, and Jimmy gave us a great example of John Gill's comments on Ephesians 5, which helps us to understand how in certain places in this commentary, John, Kill, John Gill can just assert that this is about Jesus and the church. Mm. The outline that he gives of this verse is the person uh, that speaks and begins the song, the person uh, to whom this speech is directed to the nature of the request that is made and the reason of it. So the person that is speaking, whenever the verse says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, John Gill says is the church and the bride of Jesus Christ. Um, the person that the church is speaking to when she says, let him kiss me is her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, whenever he says, for thy love, or she says, for thy love is better than wine, uh, he gives the reason and the request that is made to show the preciousness of Christ, um, the sincere desire that the church wants to have with her husband. And this is, uh, as I mentioned, comparatively rich. I think in my digital version, it was like close to... 10 pages or something like that. There are points with sub points with sub points with sub points about mm -hmm. how Christ loves his people yeah. and his people in return love him not. And he'll give reasons, not because uh, she first loved him, but because he first loved her. And uh, anyway, let me get out of the way, brothers. What were your, what were your thoughts about, Gill's approach to handling this passage. Um, are there places that you found particularly rich? Are there places where you think um, he begins to allegorize too much? Are you encouraged that he gets straight to Jesus with much depth? What were your thoughts? Well, in typical Gillian fashion, he he begins by providing a couple of options for us. You know, so he says that. This phrase, you know, uh, let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Well, this could be referring to the Old Testament church longing for the coming of Christ. Um, it could also be a personal confession of every believer who wants to have more of Christ's love experienced in in uh, in their lives. And is is or, or no, is not is that not certainly true in both accounts? Right? You have 
the Old Testament church longing for the coming of their Messiah, but you also have uh, every believer wanting more of an intimate fellowship and experiential uh, love with the with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know, then he goes into how this should not be interpreted as to say that uh, Christ loves us because we loved him first, but know that the fact that we're longing for the love of Christ is, is proof that our beloved has already uh, come to us and bestowed his love upon us. And we, we understand something of his love, but we desire more of it. So it's a very accurate uh, verse that depicts the, the ins and outs of daily Christian living in many ways. Amen. Amen. No, that's very good, Jen. Um, I was going to note too, just um, I love how he, he goes very quickly to speak to the superabundance of love that Christ mm -hmm. provides to his people. He, he notes how love could be rendered in the plural. So as like loves um, that, that there's this superabundant fountain of, of divine love that overflows to the people of God. And he notes, he notes this love um, and these are quotes from Gill being from everlasting, being mm. free from all dregs of dissimulation and deceit on the part of Christ, being free from all merit motives and conditions on the part of the church. But this is a love that doesn't depend upon us. This is a love that that God lavishes in Christ upon all of his people. And this love uh, is able to be had and enjoyed without money and without price. Uh, mm. So anybody. Through coming to saving faith in Christ, anybody can be the recipient of this love uh, through union and communion with their with their reigning, risen, uh, resurrected Lord and Savior, their husband, heavenly husband. Um, so I, I I just love the the warmth that Gill draws out. Of course, um, he's a better exegete than any modern grammatical historical only guys are. I mean, he's he's a incredible uh, exegete. But he and he's an incredible theologian. But man, his heart is just for people to see mm -hmm. that God is is a rich, gracious Father in heaven. Christ is a lovely uh, Savior and Lord, and and He is worthy to be worshipped and served and embraced. And uh, and and we see that in this verse quite clearly, in my estimation. There there are a couple of quotations that that stuck out to me. One is where he's going through and talking about the significance of the word kisses um, mm -hmm. and he was several several things um, and ways we can take it but in one of the th the third item in the list he says kisses are incentives to love mm -hmm. there's nothing that raises a believer's love higher to Christ than the flowing in of his love into their souls this warms it when cold and chill raises it to a flame quickens it when dull puts puts it in motion and sets it at work. So how the love of Christ is ultimately the fuel that 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 propels love for Christ yeah. <laughs> in in life and and how he Christ supplies us with with what we need. There's another comment later on um, where he's talking about the the great esteem of Christ's love, how it's better than wine. Mm -hmm. And in the third comment, he, he says, referring to the, he says, as to its duration, it is to eternity. And he mm -hmm. quotes John 13, one, he says, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And then he says this, his love is invariable, mm -hmm. unalterable and unchangeable. It is like himself, 
the same yesterday, today, and forever. All the waters of sin and corruption cannot extinguish it, nor can any creature in heaven, earth, or hell separate his people from it. So, I mean, just, I mean, this is an exposition. Amen. It's like, just just imagine reading a, a sequential exposition, a modern one, and just having these words floating mm-hmm. off the page um, to touch your heart. And some of those, there are some really good modern expositions. So I don't want to shoot everybody who's, who's done a modern exposition with my comments, but it's just, there's so much depth there. And Gil really seems to understand that one of the main purposes in exposition is not only to to engage the mind of the Mm -hmm. person reading or firstly listening, but also it's to engage their heart. Um, Later on, he, in the same section, really, he, he talks about um, as to the pattern or form of it, referring again to his love. It is as the father's love to him. As the Father hath loved me, says he, so have I loved you. As the Father loves Christ as mediator with an everlasting, unchangeable, and inseparable love, so Christ loved his people. Mm-hmm. What surprising grace is this, that Christ should love us with such a love when there is no comparison between him who is the object of the one and them who are the objects of the other. When we contemplate, this amazing love conceptions fail us to comprehend it Mm. words fall short of expressing it in eternity only will those surprising mysteries of grace be unfolded to us i mean there's so much so much rich stuff i mean i'll i'll let others read some of the things that they picked out but those stuck out with me amongst many others it's just a very rich thing and i think the main thing to point is he is constantly moving from engaging the head with revealed truth Mm. to moving straight to the heart of the matter amen yes uh i also appreciate how um he digs so deeply so as to give us christ in different ways with the same mm-hmm. text. You mentioned one of the ways that he interpreted kisses in the plural. Uh, his first reason was um, that each kiss could be like a different way that Christ loves us. One time he kisses us with the love of his sweet providence to us. One time he kisses us through the means of grace uh, that are dispensed through the ordinances he kisses mm. us with different uh, sweetness, sweet ways, sweet blessings. And then uh, he moves on. These kisses in the plural also show that they're not one kiss. He doesn't just love us once, but he loves us with many kisses and blesses us uh, with a kiss of love, a, a kiss of grace. And he visits us again and again and again. So uh, Dewey made this point. Jimmy made this point. He's digging deeply Mm-hmm. But he's moving beyond just uh, original grammatical. He's giving us Christ while he's digging deeply from the original sense and then developing it. Ken, what do you got? Yeah, yeah. He's digging deeply, but at the same time, a lot of the things he's drawing out are are very simple. You read it and you think, well, you don't that's not much of a stretch. And and that I think is a, again a great defense of his his the way he allegorizes, if you will. Uh, you can read this and immediately you're struck with the the impression that Gill was someone well 
equipped in the Puritan practice of spiritual meditation. This was uh, the, there's no telling how many hours Gil put into thinking through and just asking questions about the text. Um, in the day before social media and cell phones and, and, you know, where our minds are just constantly being bombarded with stimulation, the Puritans had a practice of they would take a word or a phrase, you know, they would take Christ is the door. And they would just think about that all, all day long. And they would ask questions. How is Christ like a door? In what ways is Christ a door to me? In what ways is Christ a door to the church? And so a lot of his exposition comes from Gil just taking the text and saying, okay, well, in what ways does Christ kiss us? In what ways is his love like kisses? Uh, in, in what ways is his love better than wine? And some of them are, are very simple yet profound. Like the one that I thought was uh, really kind of made me chuckle was when Gil is comparing Christ's love to wine. And he says, it's better than wine. And he says, well, one of the reasons why the love of Christ is better than wine is because you drink too much wine and you wake up the next day with a with a hangover. You got a headache, but you can't have a hangover on Christ's love. You can't you can drink it all you want and you'll never overindulge. You'll never be intoxicated on the love of Christ. And you think, well, that's really simple. I mean, you can you, it's hard to say that he's just well, he's just willy nilly interpreting the text however he wants. No, he's just drawing a very basic application from the text, but it's basic, but yet it's profound. I mean, that preaches, you know, the, the, that Christ's love is better than wine because you go out and you drink a fine wine and you, you have a few glasses and you feel good for an evening. And if you overdo it, you feel bad the next day, but Hey, Christ's love never runs out. The bottle is never empty and you can have as much as you want. And, and uh, it's there for the drinking and you'll never get sick of it. You'll never get, uh, uh, you'll never get a headache from the love of Christ. So just simple yet profound, heartwarming truths that Gil is drawing out from from the text. Amen. That's very well said, brother. Uh, thorough and simple at the same time. Yeah. Amen. Thorough and simple. Anybody have any more comments on uh, one two before we move on to four twelve? I can I can read Song of Solomon four twelve for us. We're getting close to the hour. I presume we're probably going to have to go over a little bit uh, to get our comments in on Song of Solomon four twelve, which says. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. I intentionally chose this verse because I knew that uh, other particular Baptists before John Gill clearly uh, saw this verse as speaking to the church. Uh, one of the common metaphors that the particular Baptists used to speak of the church is uh, a garden. And uh, it's clear that whether you're interpreting this uh, in the first method that we've been talking about, there are multiple metaphors that are being used in this text. The author seems to be drawing on at least different ways to speaking about the same uh, subject. But what were your thoughts about this passage and what were some uh, things that stuck out to you as uh, the author seems to write about the church being like a garden a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Well, let me just not give a comment, but just uh, a share with the, our listeners, just so they can get an idea of what you're referring to there with the whole garden metaphor. So Gil gives eight reasons, right. eight ways in which the church is like a garden. He, he says that the church is like a garden because a garden is a piece of ground that is separated and set apart for its owner's use. And the church is separated and set apart for Christ. A garden has a variety of flowers and a variety of plants, and a church 
has a variety of different saints, many different members in the body. Thirdly, he says, plants do not grow naturally by themselves. They need sunlight and water and nutrients. And saints don't grow. Just because you're in the church, that doesn't mean you're going to grow, but you need the spirit and you need the, the means of grace to grow. Fourthly, the ground must be dug up and prepared for planting. And before we can become a member of Christ's garden, we have to have the Holy Spirit break up our fallow ground and regenerate us. Keeping a garden in order requires labor and care. Well, Christ continually tends to his church. He weeds out the church. He prunes the church, John 15. Sixthly, gardens are places where persons delight to walk in. You like to walk in a garden and smell the flowers. And Christ continually loves to be in the midst of his church. Oh, he little, it's, the church is a place where Christ loves to be. Uh, seventhly, a garden is small compared to the rest of the ground. And the church is a remnant in this world compared to the rest of the world. And eighthly, he says, a garden is a fruitful and pleasant place, just like the church. So that just, isn't that just wonderful? Uh, the way that Gill digs and, and draws out all of these wonderful, truthful nuggets. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is a, a beautiful description that Gill draws out of the church being a garden. And I think a lot of that can be summed up in that a garden is not just an ordinary plot of land. There is intentionality. Um, there is a, a, a gardener required for a garden to exist. It didn't just happen by happen chance, but that, that Christ that he tilled the ground, that he planted the garden, that he protects the garden. And he's going to get into that in the in the next section where it talks about a garden enclosed. He 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 does the same thing um, with the word enclosed. Like why why is it a garden enclosed? He doesn't give quite as many reasons. I believe he gives five. But I mean the first cup or first few are it, it's for distinction's sake. Um, there's a fence to to separate the church. I mean, that's basically what it he he's getting at. There, it's for protection that's enclosed. He wants to protect it from its enemies. For secrecy, it is hidden from and is not seen or known by the world. It is like a garden that is walled and closely locked and barred, whose flowers emit a sweet and fragrant odor, but are not seen. The saints though they are exceeding useful in the world, yet are not known by the world, but are hid and shut up till the resurrection morn, when it shall appear what they really are, for at present it does not. I mean, and he goes on and he gives a few other reasons um, why it is called that way, but all just stemming to to this intentionality that Christ has in in the garden. Um, and describing his his church in this way. That's very helpful, Jimmy and Ken. And I, I would just add to everything that you guys say, for one, completely agree with all of your insights. And thank you all did a great job of this stage and his the Song of Solomon. But I love how he concludes uh, with the gospel. And I think this is a great way for us to prepare to segue into our conclusion of this episode. But at the very end of this exposition, um, he, he notes several ways in which uh, the gospel can be applied or understood in light of um, all of the imagery that he's been developing over the course of this verse. Um, he, he talks about how the gospel um, has been hidden from the unbelieving men of the world. 
Um, he, he talks about how it's designed for uh, the elect of God that they might believe uh, at the appointed time. He gets into even the doctrine of eternal security, the eternal security of believer when he says um, that, uh, let's see, it may intend the confirmation of it to the saints. So things are said to be sealed when they are ratified, confirmed, and made sure. Grace and glory both to the saints. The Spirit is the author of their grace and the earnest and pledge of their glory by whom they are sealed into the day of redemption. So he even finds a way to give um, comfort to his readers as he works his way um, through this stage of the Song of Solomon. Uh, and then he and then he concludes in, in this final point of application by discussing how um, the, the church is Christ's special property. And I don't know if that's something that we ourselves take enough time to think about. Like we, we are the special, cherished, most treasured property of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's purchased us with his own blood, his own glory and, and for our spiritual good and our spiritual way for all time. So um, I, I love, again, the pastoral gospel centeredness of Gill's approach to getting into the rich depth of exegesis and theology but also driving it home at a very pastoral and practical level uh, to his intended audience. Because Gil wants people ultimately to taste and see that the Lord is good, to come to saving faith in Christ, even as they grow in, in all of their, their intellectual understanding of the things of God, uh, and, and even in some of the practical outworkings of, of how they experience their relationship to God as believers. So um, with that having been uh, said and everything that we've already discussed up to this point, um, what are some concluding thoughts that you guys want to share with our listeners by way of encouragement or by way of tying up everything that we've said? Uh, Austin, go ahead and jump in. I saw your hand go up. I really liked Gil's method. Uh, I like that he said in the preface what he was going to do. He comes to the text. He assumes it's about Christ and his love for the church. He asserts it. He doesn't have to explain his method every time and in every verse. He asserts that this is about Christ and his love for the church. And then he shows ways that mm. this makes sense. And uh, he demonstrates very frequently uh, how it's consistent with a, view, a whole view of the Bible understanding of Christ's love for his church. So uh, I, I personally learned ways that I might uh, borrow from his method whenever I preach from certain Old Testament passages, especially in contexts where people already uh, have the interpretive presupposition that the Old Testament is about Christ. So mm -hmm. I, I was very benefited by that. Yeah, everything that Austin just said there, I, I've i profited greatly from Gill's commentaries, especially uh, in the New Testament, obviously, but especially how he approaches the Old Testament. And this is just, you see a fuller representation of his, his exegetical skill, but also his, his homiletical capabilities in, in presenting things that in such a way that they are powerful. Um, and I, I think that, I guess, concluding thoughts on what we've discussed today, it, it, it's pretty simple. You should read Gill. Uh, Gill was an imitator of Paul, who imitated Christ, and you should read Gill, and if you are a preacher of the Word and preach the Old Testament, you should imitate him. 
Um, and, and you should be humble like him too, realizing that, yeah, you, you could get it wrong. Um, but don't be scared of making too much Christ <laughs> in the Old Testament. Um, he's there. He, he is definitely there because all of Scripture ultimately points to him. So utilize the analogy of faith and the analogy of Scripture as your guardrails. And that is, for those that don't understand, use a sound system of doctrine that's from the whole Bible as a guardrail, as well as every other individual text that we find in Scripture to interpret the text that you are currently looking at, the, the queer passages to interpret the less queer. But with that being said, don't be afraid to preach Christ. And that's even when you are preaching the Old Testament. And, and I personally can speak by way of testimony that when you preach Christ from the Old Testament, God's people will be blessed. God's people will be blessed. Christ will be made much of. And in the church in which you preach, I'm not promising they'll grow numerically. That's quite possible, though, because God is gracious, but they will grow spiritually because, again, it's Christ who builds the church. So we, we should know nothing but him and him crucified, even when we preach Old Testament text. Amen. Ken, you were you were going to share some um, some resources, maybe. I think we discussed earlier you had a, a helpful resource on Gil that you'd recently been reading or um, anything else that you want to share for the benefit of our listeners by way of conclusion. Yeah, there's a brother and uh, I think uh, you know him, Dewey. And and I think he's I think you mentioned that he might even be a listener to the Covenant podcast. And that's uh, Jared File. I don't want to get the credentials wrong. Uh, and, and say the wrong seminary, but I'm, I'm quite certain he wrote a dissertation on understanding Gill's ecclesiology, which I know we've been talking a lot about uh, Gill's Christology from the Song of Solomon, but really it's kind of two sides to the same coin, uh, because if you see the Song of Solomon as a as a book about Christ, Christ and his relationship with the church, then you're going to have Christology and ecclesiology in this book, and uh, Jared File wrote a book called Understanding Gill's Ecclesiology, an Exposition of the Song of Solomon. So uh, he he deals with this book, and I've not got all the way through that volume, but it's it's tremendously helpful, and uh, I would commend that to our audience for sure. Very good. I appreciate you sharing that, Ken. And I, I would just share one more resource that we've had actually on the Covenant podcast, uh, and I think we recorded it back in 2023, so just this past year, uh, reading Song of Solomon Christologically with Trace mm. Turner, uh, the, mm. the brother that we had on to do that episode, is a ordained minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. He's done a lot of study on um, the Song of Solomon, and uh, I think he even mentions John Gill at a few points in that episode. Uh, but but as I share my concluding thoughts with the with the listeners, um, I know speaking for me as someone who was trained uh, in the formidable years of my theological education uh, to 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 embrace a very literalistic reading of Scripture, a very rigid grammatical historical hermeneutic. I've had to train myself to think Christologically, uh, particularly when reading and interpreting parts of the Old Testament, and that takes time and effort. Uh, and Trace gets to that. Uh, he, he actually uh, was my roommate at the Masters University, so uh, he can relate to having to kind of retrain himself mm-hmm. to, to read the Old Testament in light of Christ and, and to not kind of 
uh, be it be shocked or surprised when you read some of the conclusions that you'll find uh, a guy like John Gill making from the Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. So to the listener, if, if, if this is all new to you, um, this was this was new to me uh, just a few years ago within the last five years. So my encouragement to you would be to read the Puritans, read Gill, um, drink deeply from the well of the great tradition of, of godly men who have gone before us, who have interpreted the Song of Solomon in a Christologic fashion. Um, again, faithful to grammatical historical exegesis, but not being limited to that, going beyond it to the scope mm-hmm. of Scripture and, of course, mm-hmm. um, the guardrails that we have within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, and then, for, as particular Baptists, the guardrails that we have within our own confessional heritage. So having said that, that um, by way of summing everything up, does anybody have any final words before we draw this to a close? Austin? I just wanted to tell uh, Pastor Ken that this work was not published posthumously. This was published during John Gill's <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let the reader understand. If you listen to Gill Group One, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, you'll, you'll pick up on that one. Very good. Very good. Well, to our listeners, we want to thank you again, as always, for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast and of Gill Group. Until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.